0: Hey everybody, this is Chuck Marone with Strong Towns. Uh, This week on the podcast, I was working on something that got, (laughs) you're going to get next week, actually the next two weeks, a little bit more complicated than maybe I had intended originally. And so uh, I was fortunate enough to appear on the Ken Rose show this week. And I've been on his show a couple other times. We had a really nice conversation. This was a a follow-up after really a couple of years, I think, away and we had a conversation that went in places that I don't usually go uh a, a little counselor-esque at times uh this will be something a little bit different and so i'm I'm gonna share that today uh so what you're gonna hear after the break is myself on the Ken Rose show and let me make sure you've got Ken Rose's uh website address. It is what now Solutions. Dot org. And Ken has uh, people on, I think, just about every week. Uh, the podcast is interesting. Give it a look. Uh, we're uh, Strong Towns on this week. Enjoy, and uh, I'll see you next week with something a little more complicated uh, if I'm able to pull it off. Take care, everybody, and keep doing what you can to build Strong Towns.
1: You're listening to the Strong Towns Podcast.
2: Charles Marone, M-A-R-O-H-N. Uh, we had Charles. Do you mind if I call you Charles? Chuck
1: or Charles, either one's fine with me. I
2: I I I don't know you well enough to call you Chuck, so I'd <laughs> like I'd like to call you Charles. I'll call you Chuck if you want me to.
1: Either way, you're good.
2: That's uh, fine. I like- I'll extend myself, Chuck. Uh, we had Chuck on the on the uh, on the on the radio with us when I was out in California two or three years ago. I don't remember how I discovered Strong Towns, but I did, and it just uh, knocked me down. Uh, there's just something about it that uh, hits the nail on the head. Uh, please uh, correct me as I go. I want to try to introduce you to our listeners. First of all, I want to encourage our listeners to look in the archive, and um, and and if you're interested, uh, go over the interviews we had with uh, Mr. Marone, a couple of years ago we took his work uh nice and slow piece by piece and uh and got the got the lowdown uh on on how this uh how this understanding uh functions um, let me see what did i want to do i wanted to uh say that it's uh, it's a good 2 3 years since since we talked last and the reason i'm uh, interested in Uh, Hearing from you today is to see, uh, you know, how it's going, and uh, it's been a long couple of years.
1: It has been. I I remember the last time we chatted, I was actually in my basement uh, and um, was home with my kids that day, and uh, they've gotten bigger, and things have moved on, and we're certainly uh, doing more and more. our audience, in terms of our blog and our podcast, has just grown beyond anything I could imagine. And I spent, I want to say it was 65 nights on the road last year, uh, giving lectures and, and talks and meeting with different groups. Uh, we're planning a trip back to California this year, actually. So maybe we can hook up in person at some point. Well, um, I've. That's,
2: yeah, yeah. I, ca- I came east across the country. This summer, and I'm in Massachusetts now. So,
1: seriously, yeah. Last month, last month I gave a talk in Springfield, Massachusetts, and in many ways, I don't know if you've been to Springfield. Not yet. But, uh, oh, I tell you, what a gorgeous city, yeah. and gorgeous in an unrealized potential kind of way. Mm. Uh, you know, I mean, you you must be experiencing this now, but the the Northeast is such an incredible place in terms of the the historic wealth that was built in these cities that we largely walked away from uh, I was in Buffalo last year for a week and saw a lot of the same stuff there just incredible wealth incredible value in these core neighborhoods yet all of the uh, you know all the momentum of the community all the money that they were investing was in been largely other areas, and it's just a matter of getting uh, the the investment strategy changed. And these places are going to explode. They're just wonderful places waiting to be discovered. Really.
2: Yeah. When you talk about wealth, you're not talking about money.
1: I'm talking about the the essentially the long term viability of the community. You know, you you look at the way. Springfield is a good example of this. You, you look at the way the historic parts of Springfield were built, slowly, incrementally over time, over a, a number of generations. And what you have is you had essentially a structure that built community wealth. You can think of it as like an endowment for the community. People were investing in these great buildings, in this great structure uh, of a place, uh, and and the, the wealth, essentially, the, this community endowment was something that would pay back generation after generation after generation. The Northeast is just full of places like this, right. where even today the amount of, uh, of, of, of opportunity, the amount of, of you know of, of real wealth that people are, are able to access in those places. Uh, people of you know of, of all different means, of all different income levels. Uh, these are development patterns that create an enormous amount of opportunity. In Springfield, one of the great things about Springfield, Springfield has a, a, a tremendous influx of Puerto Rican uh, population. And the the really interesting thing about the Puerto Rican population is that amidst these areas where uh, other people have walked away from. They have been able to establish these really resilient, robust economic ecosystems: retail, uh, office, commercial, residential, all together on these old historic blocks in this old historic structure. And while you know nobody's getting wealthy by Wall Street standards, uh, you know by by historic American standards, uh, these are people who are doing. -hmm. Doing really well and living in places that are uh, very resilient. Many generations living together, people helping each other out, uh, people able to find you know income. But not only that, enjoy really healthy, productive, happy lives. I was very inspired by everything I saw there.
2: Uh, Mr. Marone, I didn't uh, introduce you properly. Uh, Charles Marone is, among other things, uh, a municipal engineer. He's a a civil engineer. Is that correct?
1: Yeah, I have got a civil engineering license and worked for a number of years doing city engineering work for cities all over Minnesota.
2: Right. So what uh, Mr. Marone uh, knows very well, like the back of his hand, or is the infrastructure of a a town or a small city or a large city, I suppose. Uh, Bridges, tunnels, uh, uh, roads, uh, pipes, all the stuff that was built when energy was cheap decades ago and is in uh, disrepair now. And uh, as it said, uh, we're all out of money. We have to start thinking. So... uh, Charles Marone, uh, maybe with some help, uh, started something called Strong Towns, uh, which you can investigate yourself and and has a lot to say about how uh, we're going to meet the challenge or not meet the challenge of our uh, decaying uh, built environment. Uh, I'm still confused about all of it because in the midst of uh, what What shows uh, a lot of evidence of uh, overall uh, decay and possible collapse uh, and the end of the uh, the era of cheap energy and the end of the era of uh, of money being available uh, it looks like it 's either too late for us as a as a culture or there 's a possibility that we've we 've gone too far or that uh, we 're going to uh, reimagine uh how we live uh together and live on the planet and live in our towns and cities and uh reimagine money and how it's used and and bring an end to the to the uh wholesale corruption and criminality of uh the uses of uh, money and power uh concentrated in uh in very few hands And uh, we're really looking at an overhaul of the entire uh, uh, culture, the entire country. Is that accurate? Yeah, actually, I I think that it is. I I think that at the end of the day, uh, we
1: are uh, approaching, in a sense, a reset kind of moment. Uh, You know, civilizations have gone through this many, many times in the past. Uh, When you're talking monetary systems, we've gone through this a, a number of times in the last hundred years. Uh, you know, 100 years ago, beginning of World War I, the British currency was the dominant currency in the world. And, you know, after going through the, the war uh, and then, you know, the, the period of deflation that they had after that and huge defaults and then World War Two, and the inflationary episodes they had there, uh, eventually the U.S. dollar, which was gold-backed at that point, took over as the world's currency with the Bretton Woods Agreement. We're, in a sense, you know, we're in a very different place. Uh, you know, we don't have the 60 years of cheap and easy oil that they had at that point in front of them. Uh, we've built suburbia. We've, we've gone on the suburban experiment now, two-plus generations in, and we have to maintain all this stuff or figure out how we're not going to maintain all this stuff that we built. They didn't have that overhang then. Uh, They had really, really productive, successful cities. Even though they were struggling and works in progress in a lot of places, their bones were very prosperous and successful and productive. Uh, And uh, we've destroyed those ecosystems and have to recreate them. So, yeah, we're kind of getting to uh, the end of a, a certain experiment, a certain way of doing things. And we're going to have to figure out a, a different way, a, a different way to do business, a different way to run America. Uh, I I'm not going to say I know, you know, when that pivot point is going to, you know, when history will look back and say there was the point where it changed. You can see little changes now. I just wrote a piece today about the the death of the American mall, and how mall occupancy rates are at all time lows, and and Different malls are hitting these kind of death spiral points. When you get to a certain point of lack of occupancy, they just kind of die because the critical mass of the mall goes away. We're seeing this happen again and again and again. I think that will start to happen. We've seen it a little bit with big-box stores, but I think it will accelerate now with big-box stores and the strip malls and the drive-thrus. And I think the question really for us is, how long are we going to try to prop up this current model and when are we going to start uh, investing our time and resources in a different model, a different approach? And we're trying to hasten the latter. Uh,
2: you speak in terms of uh, local maintenance obligations, life cycles, placemaking principles, and uh, and the, essentially uh, suggesting that the built environment that we've known is uh, is toast, that it's just, uh, it, it belonged yeah. to a, a well, different just, era.
1: Yeah, I, I think, like, in the evolution of cities, what we have created now is, is a bunch of dinosaurs, really. We, we've created these things that are too big to really manage and survive, not only in today's new economy, but really in, in any economy. Uh, when you look at the mall and the big box stores being two examples, these were... Things of a very specific era—an era where people could drive long distances, and, and not only could but had a desire to drive long distances to get to one shopping place that would have 48 different kinds of mustard, and you could, you know, pick out whatever you want and then go get car tires up the up the uh, aisle. Uh, that kind of thing is a, a byproduct of a certain way of financing that is uh, going away, a certain way of energy consumption, and a a certain way of building. At, At the very granular level, at the city level, one of the things that we're coming to grips with now is that we don't have the tax base, we don't have the wealth in our communities to maintain all the stuff we've built. When a new housing subdivision is put in or a new mall is put in, The cost for building all that stuff the first time, I'm talking about the roads, the streets, the sidewalk, the curb, the sewer pipe, the water pipe, all the valves, all the pumps, all this stuff, it costs millions and millions of dollars for any of these even small developments. To build this stuff, we used debt. And we rolled it over into your home mortgage. We rolled it over into the commercial real estate loan. And it became essentially a sunk cost the long-term maintenance of that became a public liability. So in a sense, if, if you have a million-dollar piece of commercial property, probably a couple hundred thousand of that as a, as, a, as a ratio is the public infrastructure. Well, you're paying for that with your commercial real estate loan. You're counting that as equity in your building, but your taxes are not supposed to pay for the maintenance of it. That's not going to happen. There isn't the amount of tax base there to maintain everything that we built. And so what you see is that cities that go into this kind of downward spiral, they start putting off maintenance. They start deferring, uh, fixing certain systems. Uh, they let some streets go bad, they let some roads go bad. Then they get to the point where they lay off firefighters and policemen, and they start to wind, you know, keep the public library closed on weekends or whatever it is, they so said to do these things as a way to get a little bit more cash to keep things going. They tried desperately to get more growth. If They can just get another big retailer to come in and build something. Uh, they can pay all the upfront costs and roll that into their debt, but we'll get all that revenue. So it's essentially a, a very high return in the short-term uh, undertaking. We see cities doing all these things. We've, we've done those now, and the ones that are deep into this Uh, are looking around going, we have millions and millions, tens of millions, sometimes hundreds of millions of dollars of maintenance and obligation that we have as a city, and we don't have even a tiny fraction of the tax base we need to be able to maintain all this stuff. This is a very different situation than our ancestors found themselves in. And I say ancestors in the biggest sense of the word. I mean, not only in North America, but around the world. We generally didn't build the major infrastructure stuff until we had a tax base there to support it. When, when you built a city 100 years ago, 200 years ago, 500 years ago, people would come together and they would start building stuff, and at some point they would get to the point and look around and say, wait, we got enough people where we can have uh, a water system or a sewer system or we can actually uh, have sidewalks or pave the street. Uh, you know, They didn't build the Roman aqueducts in order to get Rome. Uh, they built Rome had a very successful place, and then they turned around and said, you know, we can afford to put these aqueducts in. We've reversed that here in North America because of the way we uh, go about creating growth and jobs and economic development and uh, try to create prosperity. That's We're done with that. That system uh, has run its course now, and we really have to figure out how to take all this stuff we have, essentially triage it so that we can get, uh, you know, some prosperity uh, back as it all kind of starts to fall apart.
2: The, uh, the financial writer in The New Yorker magazine has a piece about, uh, called The Mortgage Mistake, about how much uh, an enormous uh, percentage of our investment uh, goes into housing and how much of our housing is uh, over the top uh these uh, mansions i mean uh, ordinary people and middle class people are living uh, way beyond their means because they feel that this is america and uh this is america's uh destiny or this is or people are entitled to live high on the hog because we're here in america and there's no money going into uh into things like infrastructure or uh research and development and uh education and uh essentially we're we're uh we're blind and and we're not very we're not we're not understanding sufficiently that uh we 're human beings and we really don't need much uh to be well and we certainly don't need much uh to be happy uh it's been shown over and over again that uh, if we have some real security, and that doesn't mean an amped up military or a, an aggressive foreign policy, if we're safe and, uh, and, and our, our legal system is just and our uh, systems of government governance are uh, intelligent and oriented toward the welfare of the whole and the welfare of the population, uh, and this whole era of massive uh, uh, corruption and criminality and dominance is just, uh, it's going to come to an end one way or another. We're either bringing it to an end peacefully with intelligence or we're going down uh, down the toilet. It's interesting because,
1: you know, a lot of it is our desperation to keep everything going. I mean, there's a, there's a saying, uh, you know, if you want to feel rich, hang out with poor people. If you want to feel poor, hang out with rich people. Uh, We are a country of essentially rich people. And when we hang out with each other, we have developed a a different sense of what wealth is and what prosperity is. The the desperation we have to keep it all going, to me, is one of the more dangerous things. I I read uh, Balco's book over Christmas break on the police state, the militarization of the police. And to me, you know, one of the scarier things that we have right now is uh, how we essentially are using police departments to enforce not only drug laws, which, you know, we've been doing for a number of decades, but we're now starting to use it to enforce just general, like, zoning kind of regulations and building code violations to actually serving these kind of warrants and inspections with SWAT teams. It's really kind of a crazy world, and, and I think we're, we, we run the risk of clinging to uh, what we think we need as opposed to actually making a, a, a conscious pivot now and realizing the difficult situation we're in and trying to adapt to it. As you're talking here, I walked over to my bookshelf, and I've got a book on my shelf called The Myth of the Great Depression. And it's, it's a fascinating read. It, it, essentially, it goes through and it talks about happiness during the, the 1930s. And in every kind of way of measuring, Americans were far happier in the 1930s than they are today. <laughs> you know, you had, if, if you were a family in the 1930s, yes, you might have been struggling to get a job. Uh, you, I mean, I, I've read The Grapes of Rask. These are, you know, there, there were certainly people in very difficult straits. But a lot of people found they had more free time. You had more time to spend with your family. Uh, you ate simpler meals and were more appreciative of them. Uh, I'm not suggesting that, you know, we we all become stoics and deny ourselves the things around us because it will feel better, although I I, I don't think that would be a horrible approach. Uh, But I I do think that you're right in that we've defined success in this country along the lines of growth and along the lines of of, of consumption in a way that I think is not only not viable financially long term uh, for our cities, but is really unhealthy for us in general, uh, just the population.
2: Yeah, uh, uh, money is. Uh, I'm I'm thinking now of money uh, as fool's gold. It's becoming revealed as fool's gold. That money. Well, and I think. Yeah.
1: Yeah, I mean the, the the thing about money in in the way that we think about it here in America is is quite an abstraction, and sometimes you you can you know lose yourself trying to think about what money is. Because you know, money today is really a set of digital constructs that we've all kind of agreed to trade with each other. There are a lot of great books. In fact, uh, there's one right next to the one I was telling you about a second ago called This Time is Different that goes through eight centuries of, they call it financial folly, but essentially eight centuries of governments establishing different currencies and then Uh, debasing them and essentially winding up in in really dire circumstances. Each one saying, this time is different, we've got it figured out, and history showing that, no, they really didn't. I think there's two takeaways from a book like that. The first one is that uh, the abstraction of money is way, way different than what I was talking about in terms of wealth and productivity earlier. And when you have a building in a downtown where people can walk to it, uh, whether we value uh, that in dollars or gold or, you know, some other abstract currency, uh, it's going to have value because it has value to people. It has value to people around it. Uh, it can be used. It can be maintained. It can be made to productive use. It, it's, it's going to have value generation after generation after generation. Uh, a, a lot of what we do today as an economy, uh, you know, the, the trading of paper, credit default swaps, I, I, I get how these can, in some ways, result in, uh, you know, the, the result in wealth being created. But, you know, companies buying back their own stocks to borrow money is driving up stock prices and making people's retirement accounts a little more flush. But it's not exactly creating wealth. Here's the the other takeaway from this this book that I think is really, uh, to me, empowering. We have been here before. Civilizations have gone through this type of overreach and then contraction many, many, many times, and they've been able to come out of it stronger, better, uh, more nimble, uh, and and really a lot of the great advances of humanity – have come not as a result of excess, but as a result of the, uh, the retooling of an economy. I'm not saying that that's going to be all pleasant. I'm not saying that, that there won't be some serious losers in that uh, transition. I, I think part of what we're doing at Strong Towns is trying to create as soft a landing as we can for our cities that are experiencing these really difficult situations. But uh I am optimistic that at the end of the day we will come out of this better than we're going into it.
2: So Strong Towns is making a name for itself and you're invited uh here and there all over the country to speak uh to civic organizations or local governments.
1: Yeah, it's really uh incredible. I, I didn't I didn't start out to do that. Um yeah, I started out writing this blog and it was really a way for me to kind of figure things out because I have been trained as an engineer. I've been trained as a planner. Uh, those were the worlds that I knew, but they were not answering the questions that I had sufficiently. And I started writing this blog because when you write, you have to think things through and writing is one way to kind of sort out your thoughts. It, a couple years into it, I found myself getting invited to come and speak at different places. and And I'm I'm an engineer. I, you know, engineers are generally not like great public speakers. Uh, I had quite a learning curve to try to get to the point where I could do like a, a, a decent presentation to people. Uh, but yeah, that that part of this kind of took me by surprise and has grown and grown and grown. Uh, right now, I am booked into September for places uh, to speak in 2015, and we're trying to be a, a little more strategic about it and cover as much of the country as we can. We're we're trying hard to build a movement of people that will bring about change in their places. And I think if there's one thing that is different today than than the last time we talked, is that our approach has become a a lot more strategic in that regard. Uh, We're really focused on connecting with people and mobilizing them uh, to affect change in their communities we need a bunch of strong towns in this country that people can learn from and copy and uh, and and develop really a new set of understandings about how we build successful places nobody has ever been where where this continent is today nobody's tried to take uh, a place in insolvency uh, after 60 years plus of this auto based experiment and reconstitute it as something financially viable. That's a brand-new trade. It's a brand-new practice. And we're trying to get as many people around the country to help us figure it out as we can because, as you know, the scene in California and the way those places are going to be reconstructed, it's going to be way different than the scene in the Northeast. Uh, The stuff that's going to work in Springfield, Massachusetts, uh, is going to be a lot different. Uh, than the stuff that's going to work in a place like Lancaster, California, or San Bernardino. Uh, so we, we've got to figure all that out, and That's a monumental challenge that is going to involve a lot more people than just myself and my colleagues here. Yeah, uh,
2: Mr. Marone, when you look at uh, the overview, when you look uh, generally at uh, small, medium, large towns and cities, uh, how do you judge the actual state? are we in a state of dilapidation are we in a state of of uh, grave danger are we in a state uh, are we poised for any sort of renaissance uh, do you are there uh, protocols or plans or strategies uh, that are, are that we we know or you know uh, will fundamentally work if they're applied intelligently uh, that sort of thing can you give us uh, your yeah. own um uh, general yeah. perception.
1: I think that um, as a as a general guideline, we've pretty much figured this one thing out as a general guideline: where places are built at a human scale, where they're built for people, they tend to be, and this is not universal, but they tend to be financially far more viable. They they tend to be more successful. They tend to be easier to resuscitate they tend to be easier to get uh, to the next generation successfully. Our places are built exclusively for the automobile. Uh, even if they're done beautifully, even if they're gold-plated, even if they've got all the bells and whistles, they tend to not age well, and they tend to struggle uh, and be very difficult to get to the next generation. Uh, we came up with something this year called the Town Strength Test. It's one of these ways to answer that question. You go into a community and you say, okay, let me, let me take a look at some of these things and see how, you know, see if you're on the right path or not. We talked about, you know, are there more people than cars on your main street over the lunch hour? Uh, if we're seeing a lot of people, it's one of those signs that, you know, things are, things are working here. There's an ecosystem uh, economically, socially, and culturally here. Uh, that is, is off the ground. When we only see cars and we don't see people, then that ecosystem is a, is a lot more fragile. Uh, we talk about things like um, debt. Uh, you know, are you spending more than 10% of your local, locally generated revenue on debt? Uh, cities that are are really uh, fragile compared to cities that are not. Cities that are not have a, a lot more uh, options for responding to stress and opportunity than cities that are debt-laden. We talked about the ability of people to live uh, multiple generations within walking distance of each other. And the reason that's important is because, again, you're getting to that viable ecosystem. If I can move to a city uh, with, you know, my my parents and my uh, in-laws and, you know, someday my kids, and we can all live – in a neighborhood that meets all of our different needs at different points in life. Uh, those kind of cities, you know, and all those places are, can be walked reached by walking to one another. Those are places where the bones of the community and the ecosystem that is set up there uh, is, is, is stronger and resilient than places where those different living styles are all segregated into different pods, pods that are not reachable from each other except by automobile. Uh, I'm, there was one more I wanted to bring up. Oh, yeah, the, the biking. Um, can, your, can your children uh, bike and walk to school without adult supervision? In other words, uh, you know, are, are you nervous about them getting run over? You know, you won't let them walk to school because they're going to get hit by a car. You're not going to let them walk to school because there aren't enough people out on the street to kind of have that self-policing, eyes-on-the-street kind of feel. Uh, places where the kids walk to school every day are places again where those economic social cultural bonds are in place and those places are going to weather the storm they're going to be in a much stronger position be a lot healthier going in so to me there's there's some ways to to look at this and obviously you know in a city by city basis uh, we've got a, a many many different concerns you know you you go to a place like Springfield, Massachusetts, and you've got a lot of good social interaction. You've got a lot of good cultural cohesion in many neighborhoods, but often across neighborhoods, it's not that great. And you lack the key investments in the those connections uh, and see a lot of those key investments being made artificially out on the edge by government policy or by other types of incentives. Uh, We can fix that pretty easily and we can get a place like that moving in the right direction and kind of building incrementally on its successes pretty easily. We go to California and we take a place like San Bernardino where it is structurally built differently, where every neighborhood is designed by by plan, by design to be isolated from every other neighborhood. And you look at a place like that and reconnecting those bonds, making those – that deeper ecosystem that you need to survive stress becomes much more difficult. And you have to add a a far more intentional approach than you would in a place like Springfield where it's literally go out and weed the garden and water the grass and you can get that ecosystem back. In, In San Bernardino, you have almost lobotomy type things you need to do to get a place like that back. Those are kind of two extremes. And I think most of America falls somewhere in the middle. I know my hometown here, uh, we've got a great downtown and great surrounding neighborhood that have suffered from 50, 60 years of decline and neglect. If we just had a different vision for them, uh, we could do amazing things in these places. There's the demand for it. The cost to do it would not be huge. Uh, the private sector can do a lot of the lifting if we just Uh, got out of the way and maybe made some key strategic public investments. But the neighboring city, which is all built post-1975, everything is cul-de-sacs, everything is uh, strip malls and frontage roads. Uh, They are going to have a very difficult time being viable over the next generation simply because they're set up in a way designed to fail.
2: I came through Brainerd last May. No way. Way? Did you did you call here? I you know I thought about it, but I was humping it. I I was I came a long way. I was doing a lot of driving. Uh, it wasn't a vacation, and I thought you know gee I should call uh, Mr. Marone, but I didn't. What can I tell you? But I thought I of loved it. it. Yeah, I should have. But you're right yeah. on the Mississippi River, right?
1: Yeah, exactly. You know, it's it's kind of funny because um, as I've been doing this, I mean, I I don't think of myself as, uh, you know, anybody necessarily worth, like, I'm I'm certainly not a tourist destination. Uh, But it's been funny to me because I'm in the old rail yard at the Burlington Northern Center here in Brainerd, and I'm right out, you know, the railroad tracks are right outside my window. Uh, I see the trains coming by all day. It's amazing to me how many people – We'll go to Taco John's, just right across the street. I wrote this article; it's one of our most popular articles ever about the Taco John's here in town. They'll go to Taco John's, take a picture, and send it to me, or they'll come and stop by the office just to say hi. And I, I find it to be such a uh, invigorating kind of thing uh, that you know people are that uh, kind of kind and excited about what we're doing, that when they drive through Brainerd, that those are, you know, two of the things that they, they feel like reaching out to me with. Uh, I, I wish you would have, I wish you would have let me know, because I would have loved to have uh, met face-to-face and chatted a little bit. You know what, I, fe-
2: I feel real bad about it. <laughs> I really do. <laughs> I, I, I can't really remember where, where my head was at when I came through town. I think I was just, you know, when you're driving a long way, you just get plastered behind the wheel and... uh you know, you you just um, I don't know. I just couldn't stop. Uh, uh, Let me ask you this: Were you headed east, west, or north, south? I was headed uh, east. I, oh, I, oh, okay. I I um I I put up in uh, in Duluth for a while. I I got. Yeah, so- I think I think the day I passed through Brainerd, I'm trying to remember. I think I started out, believe it or not, in uh, Spokane, Washington, and I. I drove through the night. I I didn't stop. Um, I don't know. I'd I'd have to really remember, you know, uh, how it happened. But uh, I came, I drove like 2,000 miles like in two two days. Uh, You know, it was pretty intense. And uh, Minnesota was beautiful.
1: Yeah, yeah. Once you get to that, I mean, going east-west, you you drove the whole city. North-south, you can go through because – The north-south highway now goes all around Brainerd. It goes through Baxter, the the suburb, uh, but it completely skips Brainerd. And so you you could have driven through here without even seeing it. But but going east-west, you cross the Mississippi. Uh, When you cross the Mississippi, you entered the old historic part of the community. Uh, After about eh, another mile, you would have hit the rail yards. That's where I'm at. And, uh, yeah, you got the full experience. I don't blame you. Um, you know, I've, I've, we've camped out west and driven back through here. And there's a, I love the Dakotas; they're wonderful. I love Wyoming; it's beautiful. Uh, but at a certain point, you just want to get to your destination. You know, it, it um, <laughs> it's one of those things where you know, you you travel through the Dakotas and and western Minnesota, and you just start to get to the the, the forest, which is where I live. I'm probably in the direction you were coming from, maybe uh, 50 miles into the forest, 60 miles into the forest, and you just start to hit that, and you can tell that your destination's close. Duluth yeah. is a beautiful city, too. I mean, I I, I love it. I've got a, my best friend lives there. We try to go there every chance we can.
2: I love Duluth. Duluth knocked me out. It's like a dream. It's the, the city built on a hill, and some of those buildings just uh, I just felt like I was in another uh, world, um, very beautiful, Duluth right is, on Lake Superior.
1: It, it, it's amazing because Duluth is, you know, a lot of this old steel money, and there's some of the craziest, most expensive homes you'll ever find huh. uh, in Duluth. Yeah. But then you can go literally blocks away, and you still have that old historic uh, ecosystem where you have a lot of modestly priced houses, uh, a lot of houses for for really different incomes. Duluth is exciting because they're succeeding uh, despite, uh, I think, some of their natural tendencies. It's one of these places that is burdened uh, with um, some of the leftovers of the steel mindset, the the mining. and and
2: Well, it's the iron ore. It's the iron ore
1: exactly exactly what it is. And, you know, a, a lot of that is boom and bust. Uh, a lot of it is, you know, worker versus corporation. Um, it, there's a really strong union presence, but in a uh, mostly now in, 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 in government, which unfortunately has the, the side effect of the government's not being very nimble up there in the way that you would like them to be. And, you know, despite all this, Duluth is really, I think, one of the more exciting cities in Minnesota. You have an amphitheater to the lake, essentially, Mm -hmm. in that historic development pattern. Mm -hmm. And just all kinds of beautiful opportunities to embed within Duluth and live a really high quality of life in what I think is one of, you know, the country's most beautiful cities.
2: Yeah, yeah i i'm very moved by it i uh i'm very fond of it um uh mr marone uh suburbia is uh is a catastrophe historically are we going to be able to back out of our suburban uh investments are we going to be able to abandon suburbia i mean it's just i don 't see how we could make it work uh it's it's car dependent and it's uh, spread out and it's overbuilt in terms of uh Pseudo luxury housing, etc., that type of thing. It just can suburbia uh, be uh, transformed?
1: I think that the American version of suburbia, and and understand, you know, I, I know you and I are talking about the same thing, but I think just for the listeners, if we step back, cities have always had suburbs. You could go back to the old days where you had, you know, the castle walls, and I mean, basically, you had. The wealthy people inside the castle walls, the connected people on um, the suburbs, the outside of the walls, you had <laughs> the fiefdom, you know, you had the, the poor people living. And then way beyond that, you might have uh, the summer cottage of some prince or, or duke or whatever. We always had a living arrangement that had urban areas and then suburban areas. What's different about the United States, 19, you know, post World War II, is that we inverted the economics of our places and then took the suburbs and spread them out horizontally in distances that were, you know, unfathomable until the automobile. So the, the question that we have, I think, is really, are is this unnatural pattern going to be sustained or are we going to, you know, or, or and, and my, my short answer to that is no. So to me the question is how do we morph, back into a development pattern that is more long-term viable, more reflective of that historic development pattern. And I've I said that the suburbs, as we know them here in America, one of three things is going to happen to every suburb. They're either going to be retrofitted, uh, and I think it's a very, very small percentage, like less than 2% that are actually going to be retrofitted to be viable. And by retrofitted, I mean taking single-family homes and allowing them to become duplexes and triplexes, and then uh, having them within walking distance of, you know, key things that people need day in and day out. Uh, it's very difficult to do this because of the the distances that things are spread out. Uh, but some of them have a configuration where they can be retrofitted. The vast majority, though, I, I think two things will happen, I think – Uh, they will either be uh, abandoned in place um, or they will become salvage material. Uh, I I think that there will be an an industry over the next generation of actually salvaging uh, a lot of these building materials. Um, I don't know how much of it can be salvaged. I'm sure that very smart people will figure it out. Uh, Certainly the copper pipes and, and the copper wires People are already going in and houses that have been abandoned and taking some of those things, Uh, but I can see there being a a conscious uh, industry, in a sense, of of taking some of these places and, uh, you know, salvaging what can be done. This brings us to what I think is the greatest challenge that we face, and if we look just to last summer and what happened in Ferguson, Missouri, I, I think that... Ferguson, to me, is, is a symptom of many things, but one of the things that I, I think didn't get talked about a whole lot but needs to is it's a symptom of the American development pattern and essentially the decline built into our places. As our development pattern goes back to a, a more historical structure and as we this inversion where we emptied out our cities and, and put all the rich people in the suburbs... Uh, as this reverses, and we see this going on all over the place where wealthier people are moving back into the center of the city, what we are doing is we are starting to once again concentrate poorer people out on the edges of our communities. If you go back a hundred years or 200 years or 500 years, I'm not suggesting that that was a good outcome. but when you look at those places, they had viable ecosystems in those places. They had viable ways to get food, uh, to support each other, to work together. Today, when we isolate poor people in American suburbs, they don't have any of those things. Uh, they don't have good transportation. Uh, they don't have good communications. They don't have opportunities for interaction, interactions that can lead to uh, business formation. Uh, sharing of resources, what have you. Our suburbs are designed to be very isolating, and when we abandon our poor people in those places, uh, Ferguson is just the start of the kind of things that we can expect. Uh, very much disconnect between people and uh, you know authority institutions. Uh, uh, you know, increasing amounts of social disorder, and you know, I, I hope that. And I'm going to do everything I can to see that our response to that is not uh, necessarily the way we responded, you know, not the way we responded to it in Ferguson, but to actually understand the problem, uh, the problem being one of a a lack of opportunity in a system that essentially codifies poverty as opposed to a a, a good structure, which uh, creates viable ecosystems and viable economic systems. Uh, in, at the local level for people. Uh, I'm very concerned, and I think the thing that keeps me up at night is that trend, that trend of isolating poverty in these places that were not designed. They were designed for rich people in perpetuity, and we're now putting very vulnerable people into them uh, by default, and I, I think that's a recipe for really, really difficult times
2: mm very much appreciate that uh, understanding. Uh, uh, would you say just a few things about city life in general?
1: Um, I'm, I'm maybe not the best at, at, at that. I mean, I, I don't live in – I mean, I, I live in a city, but, you know, my city's 13,500. I, I really like the size of this community. Um, my wife works in a city of 50,000. Uh, just a a ways away from here. And I like that size community as well. I I grew up on a farm. I am a small-town guy. Uh, I I am excited in a place like this about the growing relevance of the city itself. Uh, I've got, you know, friends that I have lunch with, uh, bike over and and meet them. Uh, We've got nice little pizza joints and coffee shops. I think there's uh, a growing civic life, even in a place like this, that kind of became passe a a generation ago, or at least, you know, was happening at the mall or what have you. Uh, It's now starting to seep back into the neighborhoods and seep back into uh, some of those historic downtown destinations. I'm excited about that. I think that when you talk to millennials or when you visit, like I was in New York Last month, and we had a strong town to get together at, at a brewery in, in New York. It's fascinating to me that you can you're more likely to be able to drink locally produced beer, uh, consume locally grown food in New York City than you are even in my you know my hometown here in central Minnesota, where we're surrounded by farms and ag and and, and you know all this production capacity. It's fascinating to me in New York how. Uh, The crowd that was drawn there, um, really, that was a a big part of why they wanted to live in a place like New York City. Now, there's a certain, and I'm going to speak to this in a way that it's maybe, I don't want to sound critical, but let me me say this, there's a certain lifestyle that has been labeled, you know, when I grew up, it was the yuppies. Uh, There's a certain hipster lifestyle today that's kind of personified in, in all that stuff I just discussed, the coffee shop, the brewery, hanging out with friends. It's the hipster lifestyle. And there's a certain amount of pushback from people who don't want their places uh, inundated by, instead of hipsters, uh, you know, the, the artist clicks and all this kind of thing, who, who seem to be like the, the, first, uh, the, the first kind of indicator species that invade cities when they're kind of having that initial turnaround. I'm sympathetic to that, uh, and, and, I, and I get that. I, I understand that cities are, you know, if we design cities for hipsters, uh, we're going to miss a, a whole broad swath of the population. To me, I would go back to a place like Springfield, and, you know, the Italian neighborhoods that they had there and the Puerto Rican neighborhoods that I was in, uh, these are not places dominated by hipsters, but they're still places where you can get a really great sub sandwich. And you know, I, I went to this one bakery where they had Italian pastries, and this is like authentic Italian pastries. And I, I just I, I kind of went overboard and I selected like three different things I'd like and had them. They put them in a box and wrapped it in a string. It was just beautiful. And I pulled out a twenty out of my wallet thinking I might need more than 20 bucks for this. Cause there are no prices on any of it. And the woman at the counter said $5. And I said, you, you're joking me, right? Like $5. That's for one thing, right? No, it's $5 for the entire box. It was embarrassing. Uh, how, you know, how cheap this was. These are different places. These are different types of ecosystems. And, and to me, I think the hipster thing, is is fun and it's interesting and it's part of where city life is headed. And when you read about cities, you're reading about this. But to me, I think if you really want to see good, viable cities where they're at, you'll go to some of those uh, some of those neighborhoods, like the Puerto Rican neighborhoods in uh, in Springfield, and see how families live together in cities, multiple generations interacting. See where people work see how they earn a living, see how they obtain food. Uh, to me, those are the more interesting models. And, and I think that's kind of where the hipster lifestyle ultimately evolves to. I mean, I, I, the hipster thing is, is more of a kind of tip of the spear uh, where that kind of full e- underlying ecosystem is really where cities need to get to and I, I think ultimately will have to get to in order to be successful.
2: I don't know. I think the hipster thing is mostly a young thing and I I think uh I, I'm I'm living now in a college town and there's a lot of young people and uh I don't envy them. I don't I don't I don't uh I'm glad to be getting to be getting old. Uh every, everything feels feels richer and deeper and more meaningful and uh I'm not looking for any cheap thrills and um Uh, it's just, uh, um, it just feels like, uh, like becoming a real human being to just live, uh, modestly and, uh, with, uh, with people you love and, and not be seduced by, by all kinds of, uh, titillations and adrenaline rushes and, uh, life is, uh, Life is life is uh, is rooted. It's rooted on the earth, and it's rooted in in uh, communities of uh, of people. And uh, anyway, I, I think, yeah, no, I, I think you're right. I, I think to
1: me, uh, having a meaningful life is the kind of ultimate destination, right? And I was just talking to my wife about this the other day. You know, we we both. I think if we go back. There would be so many things we would do differently. You know, if you could go back in your early 20s, you wouldn't have obsessed over these things that, you know, in hindsight are not relevant, and you wouldn't have maybe, uh, you know, done some of the some of the things that at the time seemed so important, but now today, you know, seem so silly. And you realize, I, at least I do, on the trajectory I'm on. It's, I, I hope, I hope that uh, I I can get the, the the, the, the satisfaction that I hope I have at 65, my goal is to accelerate that now to, to 45, right? <laughs> uh, because if I could have accelerated the satisfaction I have today at age 41 uh, and, and I had that when I was 31 or 21, uh, you know, my life would be even better than it is right now. Yeah. I think that meaningful life, it, the more we can talk about that, You know, how how do you create a meaningful life? I think when people answer that, they're less talking about the things that we measure in this country as success, GDP growth, consumption rates, uh, you know, all all these things that are indicators in an economic sense of of us doing well really aren't the things that provide people a meaningful life. And I think part of our duty, you know, and I appreciate you, you bringing this back to this, part of our duty as a, as Americans is to really talk to each other about what a meaningful life entails and, and how we give meaning to each other's lives. I, I really think that's our, that's our, that's a big challenge right now.
2: Yeah. Yeah. Well, I've, from the minute I, I became aware of strong towns, I loved it. I fell in love with strong towns because I know that you're, uh, that this is all about becoming human again and becoming, uh, Becoming people and enjoying uh, the great gift of life and uh, the great uh, blessings of life. It's a simple matter and uh, We don't have to go far from home, and we don't have to go far from each other uh, And we don't have to go far looking for thrills Um, Life's too short and life's too good to to essentially waste it on all kinds of extravagances I, uh, I'm just glad to hear you again. I'm glad to talk to you again. I hope we'll check in with you down the road again. And, uh, just, uh, you know, many blessings to strong towns.
1: Well, Hey, I, I appreciate it. And it's nice to hear your voice. And I, you know, I have fond memories of our last two conversations cause you, you know, things were very new for us back then. And you kind of plucked us out of the wilderness in a way and it was fun to talk. And I hope we do this again
2: soon. Well, I just want to tell our listeners again to look in the archives, WhatNowSolutions.org, and uh, uh, bone up on the uh, the nuts and bolts of strong towns. We hardly touched it today. We hardly talked about uh, the the uh, the way the way uh, what you actually do. Uh, um, but all that stuff we laid it down a couple of years ago. It's uh, it's, it's in the archive. It's good stuff. It's great stuff. And uh, it's very, uh, very uh, hopeful for all of us. So uh, happy winter, and uh, we'll catch you down the line. Thank you, Ken. You take care. All right. Best to you. Bye-bye.
0: Know that America's one big pothole right now. Bill, 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 Bill. That's a story.
1: Chuck Morone, this has been fascinating.
3: Oh find city? I like you. I like your vision of the of the world. On a, I was on an airplane, and there was internet, high-speed internet on the airplane. That's yes. the newest thing that I know exists. And I'm sitting on the plane, and they go, open up your laptop, you can go on the internet. And it's fast, and I'm watching YouTube clips. It's a, I'm in an airplane. And then it breaks down. And they apologize, the internet's not working. The guy next to me goes, this is bullshit." <laughs> like, how quickly the world owes him something. Yes he knew existed only 10 seconds ago. Right, (laughs) right. And on planes, (laughs) flying is the worst one because people come back from flights and they tell you their story. And it's like a horror story. It's they act like their flight was like a cattle car in the forties in Germany. That's how bad they make it sound. Right. They're like, it was the worst day of my life. (laughs) First of all, we didn't board for 20 minutes. And then we get on the plane and they made us sit there on the runway for 40 minutes. We had to sit there. Oh, really? What happened next? Did you fly through the air incredibly (laughs) like a bird? Did you partake in the miracle of human flight, you non contributing zero that you got to fly? You're flying! It's amazing! Everybody on every plane should just constantly be going, oh, my God! Wow! Yes. You're flying. You're, you're sitting in a chair in the sky. Yes. Yeah. Yeah.